If you're Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander, you should know that this episode contains the voices and names of deceased persons. I'm Tamsin Peach, your host, and this is History Lab, where we explore the gaps. Hang on, Tamsin. What? Don't I get to do that? I thought that was my job. (laughs) Okay, go for it, Alicia. Great, thank you. Hi, I'm Alicia Simmons, your guest host. I'm an interdisciplinary scholar in law and history at the University of Technology, Sydney. And Alicia, if she (laughs) sounds familiar, it's because Alicia appeared in our very first season with her very own History Lab episode, Damages of a Broken Heart. And if you haven't already listened to it, you can go back and get it on all your favourite After listening to this episode, of course. Of course. And uh, we are cracking on with that, aren't we, Alicia? Because we have a brand new season. We Mm. thought we'd take this opportunity to go a little bit off script because that is not what we do at all and start to dissect the law's way of knowing. So for those of you paying attention, you'd know that this season is dedicated to histories that intersect with the law, each in their own wonderfully complicated and demonstrably messy ways. Yeah, so we know both law and history have a similar obligation in a way to draw the most plausible conclusions based on the traces or the absence of traces that are left behind. And because Alicia straddles both these worlds, both the legal and the historical realms... Interdisciplinary. Interdisciplinary, quite. (laughs) We wanted to get you involved. Thanks. So can you maybe say a little bit about how the law relies on traces and how this differs, say, to the way history relies on traces from the past? I think in order to answer this question, we need to go broad and we need to begin by outlining what the differences are. For instance, with law, words have a very different meaning. When a judge makes an order or delivers a judgment, someone could potentially go to prison. They may lose their money, they may lose their house, their family, or in some countries they may lose their life. This is based upon a word, words or phrases that are uttered. So to that extent, law sort of takes place in a field of pain and death and legal words have coercive effects. Sounds dramatic, but it's true when you look at it. You know, it's a very violent kind of language. So they have like power. Coercive effect, power, absolutely. When an historian writes a book, and this is not to undermine (coughs) history at all, but it doesn't quite have the same, uh, it doesn't quite have the same effect. For the most part, they're going to contribute to knowledge. They may shape notions of identity, of nationhood, democracy. In some instances, their knowledge may be incorporated into legal knowledge, but that will always be on the law's terms. And nobody's really likely to lose their life or their liberty as a direct result of something that you find in an archive And to that extent, going back to your original question, the standards of proof and the needs for traces or for certainties are also higher. So there's a branch of history, for instance, that's practiced at UTS called speculative biography. And this is where historians imagine their way into the past. You could say similar things about ethnography. They do a similar kind of imaginative reading based on these traces, based on these sources. They may make up things about a particular person's life where they're not certain that that actually happened to them, but it's based broadly upon what they know in that particular historical well, area. So like there's some material that has survived or that is available and they're in the gaps between yeah. those bits of evidence yeah. that people then insert their imagination. 
information. And they say that this is important for an empathic understanding and empathic relationship with the past, that you need to do that because the sources that they're dealing with often, you know, with biography are slim, particularly if you're dealing with, with the poor. Now, the idea of imagining your way into a fact scenario it would be absolutely impossible in law. The idea that you would have a speculative case would simply never happen. I think that ultimately it sort of comes down to the fact that each discipline and each field of knowledge has different social purposes and different effects. And if we start from that, then we can start to see why they deal with evidence and with proof in different ways. Which is one I wanted to ask you about. So both use this word evidence a lot, Mm. right? both law and history. If the truth is uncertain often, in historical mm. archives like diaries and mm-hmm. you know letters and government documents and mm. even, even oral testimony, is it harder or easier to find the truth in legal archives or legal documents? Mm. When you talk about legal archives, what we're talking about is the writs, the summonses, the affidavits. You get these big bundles that are submitted to the archives, to the state records office, after cases. And then as historians, you can go and consult those. So they have the appearance of truth, of an authoritative collection of sources or of remnants of the past. And as a result of this, from sort of the mid-19th century, where you have people like Jules Michelet, he's a French legal historian of the medieval period, they start to use legal archives to rescue the lives of the poor. And this also takes place in the 1960s and 70s, with social history. So legal archives are crucial to that in that poor people generally didn't keep diaries. They didn't write letters and if they did then they wouldn't drop them off to the National Archives with an idea that other people are going to be interested in their very humble family in the future. And so to that extent prior to historians' use of legal archives, a lot of the time you're dealing with bourgeois, wealthy people and very constrained representations of the past as a result. So the question about truth there is interesting in that at first... People didn't even question the veracity of them. It was simply just exciting to have this tear in the fabric of time, this glimpse into the lives of people who had otherwise been silent. And as someone who uses legal archives, I can totally see that. You know, you can hear their voices when you're in the archives. There's a there's an orality to it, even though it's all written. You go to sleep with their voices in your head, and it's it's lovely. Yeah, um, you and know, I mean, there's, there's a reality to that. Interesting about the state's way of poor people. Pre- Prisoners in Australia, often Indigenous people, that like sure. they're because they're surveilled by the state. Good, yeah. Like they have a kind of presence <laughs> yeah. in the archive that is disproportionate to their number. Absolutely, more. absolutely. Which is why they're such a rich source. At the same time, it wasn't until sort of the nineteen eighties and nineties, postmodernist historians, in particular Natalie Zeman Davis and Carolyn Steed, are, are crucial here. They came out and said, "Do you know what? There is a kind of fictive element to a lot of these sources. What you're getting is not an unmediated representation of what these people were experiencing. Firstly, you're getting them in the most desperate circumstances, and they are." creating a life story a lot of the time. If you read an affidavit, it usually begins with, I was born on this particular date. I was a spinster, then a wife. It's a prompt to autobiography in Mm. a way. And you can easily take it at face value until you go, this person is writing this story to save their neck. They're writing this for various purposes, to condemn somebody else, to try to get money. There's a purpose behind it. They're also not writing it. A scribe is writing it, and the scribe is also probably going to write it based upon 
how the lawyer has coached that person to give their testimony. Natalie Zeman Davis really pointed out the extent to which you have these stories that are constructed insofar as they are able to fit particular legal categories. They're not these kind of free-form life stories that you might get in a diary or something like that. Instead, you have the crafting and the fitting of a story for instance, in my cases, she needs to show that she's been damaged. Regardless of how she felt during her breakup, she might have been completely delighted. He might have been a complete cad. But in order to get money, she has to go, I was utterly stricken. You're saying something interesting here, which is that the law and truth do not go hand in hand necessarily. Not at all. Yeah, I think that the law is sometimes the worst place to look for the truth or is certainly not the only place. And I think that that's definitely there in sexual assault cases. And I think he's partly behind the Me Too movement. You know, the law hasn't listened to women's truths in that instance. So instead you take to media or you take to a range of informal kind of courts. And you're kind of talking about how the law then in taking to other kinds of courts and trying to bring about other kinds of social pressures, that too is the way the law is changed. Yeah, I teach law and I very much enjoy it, but I think it's a shame about the way that law is taught is the fact that there is a lack of context. You kind of teach these particular cases, you give your students doctrine, you give them legal principles. At no point do they get any sense of the rallies that might have gone on around a particular case, which is often the case in Australian legal history. People are really involved in them. I mean, in the 19th century in particular, you have a lot of legal cases or the transcripts of them being written up verbatim in the newspapers. People have a level of legal literacy that we don't have today. Mm. And to that extent, the context is completely important. You know, this was the domain of everyday people. That's a rally and contributing to it. For yeah. citizenship people. Yeah. Yes. It does go to this other question, which is about often we talk about how history is not necessarily about finding the right answer, mm. but changing the questions we're asking. Yeah. And those questions are reflecting the times in which they're asked often. Mm. So, how does the law respond to that kind of issue? The idea of the law lacks some sort of ontological foundation. But if you think about the way in which legislation and the common law change in accordance with shifting kind of social power relations and stuff like that, then yeah, it does. I mean, there are certain legal historians and certain jurisprudence who would say that the law has its own internal dynamic and will change accordingly. I don't subscribe to that view. I think that law is absolutely a cultural and social institution and will change accordingly. You know, in terms of your question, I think it's best answered through an example, what questions the law considers to be important or which are even permissible. And it's a good example of that is obviously sexual assault, where firstly, you have the fact that women's testimony from the outset is not trusted. It's stated very explicitly in Lord Hale's dictum, which is a 1736 judge who said, these cases, so often they're lying. So we have to be very, very careful. And to that extent, women need corroboration. My breach of promise plaintiffs had exactly the same thing. Because it was a feminised action, it was the only civil action that required corroboration. And it was entirely because of gender, because of this idea that women are incredible, that they cannot be trusted, that they lack credibility, they lack credit. So branching out from that, you then have the extent to which recently, and by recently I mean sort of the last 30 years, there's been protest against women being asked questions based upon their previous sexual history in sexual assault cases, being asked questions about what they're wearing. As an academic, I think the interesting issue there is 
Why were these questions being asked? What was it about the way that the law was framing a particular offence that resulted in the idea that these questions would arrive at a particular truth? And I think in the case of sexual assault, you have very clearly the case that the law historically viewed it as a trespass against mm, tro- property. property yeah. That the woman was the property of an owning man, and to that extent, your sexual history is very important because if you are common property, then nobody owns you. Mm. And to that extent, you can't be trespassed upon. And so questions around your prior sexual history were quite significant. The minute that women start to be seen as having property in their own person and their own harm is emphasized rather than the harm of a father or a husband, then you start Mm. having these different questions and you start having contestation over what questions are being asked of those women. And on top of that, the kind of trauma that results, Mm. you know, from that, the extent to which these court cases re-traumatize women who have already suffered harm. Yeah, right. So that framing question, which is Mm. deeply contextual and historically specific and changes, is in some ways a parallel to the kind of framing question that historians also Yeah. The, the difference is, I think, that law is always dealing with categories and elements. You tick them off. You have to prove these particular elements in order to satisfy the commission of a crime or, you know, in order to, to win, basically. So that really constrains how you can know mm. um, and what is important to knowing. Everything outside of that is kind of shorn away. So I think that's really interesting. And that's why legal history is great, because you get both, you know, you get the wider context as well. One of the episodes that is coming up in History Lab is going to feature Professor Cole. Lord Rue, who is the director of the UTS Centre for Forensic Science. He's really interested in this question of indeterminacy too. Mm. He helps us examine the modern history of forensic science and um, he's helped to develop a number of really world-leading forensic techniques and technologies that are taken up mm. across the globe. So I want to play you something that he told us. We work with a lot of shades of grey. We work with uncertainty right from the beginning. And I guess a big characteristic of forensic science and of a forensic scientist is to be able to to manage that uncertainty properly and express that uncertainty appropriately and as clearly as possible. I find this really interesting. Obviously, forensic science is used regularly in the courtroom, but Mm. Claude's saying here that he believes that forensic science... Well, its reliability is dependent on the question that you're trying to answer. And this means that asking the wrong questions will undoubtedly deliver the wrong answers, even if the best and the most fully validated forensic method is applied. Mm. Given Claude's theory, how good is history and the law at expressing uncertainty? Good history, I think, is a lot better than law at expressing uncertainties. Good history will always say that it's provisional in any case, but also that it it accepts that it is a humanities rather than a science, that it's a process of interpretation rather than an exegetical extraction of particular truths from a text. Are you saying that the um, law will never admit that it's provisional? No, not at all. I think that what's interesting with the law is that you have these two levels of understanding of it. On the one side, you have principles like the rule of law and you have popular perceptions of law which need it to claim its certainty. Otherwise, you don't send someone to prison. You know, you don't have these kind of dire consequences. It has to make a claim to that. At the same time, we're also quite au fait with the idea that you can have seven 
dissenting judges. You can have a range of different interpretations. You've always obviously got to have a majority, but they can offer very different arguments about what comprises the law. When you're working with it, you see just how much uncertainty there is in it. And there needs to be as well, otherwise it's not going to change and it's not going to be relevant to society. Do you think, Alicia, then there's a historical way of knowing that's different to a legal way of knowing? In terms of there being a legal way of knowing, in this instance, I would say that an evidence lawyer would be your best bet to ask that question of. I don't claim any expertise in that area, but I can certainly say that as a legal historian, the law's way of knowing has changed dramatically over time. And I think that's really interesting and not something that law students are certainly taught throughout their degrees. So as an example, for most of the 19th century and prior, plaintiffs and respondents in civil cases were not allowed to give evidence in their own cases, which goes against completely our idea that your proximity to a particular event is a guarantee of your veracity or the better quality of your your truth. And they were incapable of doing that because it was thought that the risk of perjury was just too high for those directly involved. So in breach of promise cases, you'd instead have gossiping neighbours stand up and say what they thought was going on in the most intimate of affairs. Love letters, gifts, all of these things would step in. So these rules were partly about the relationship between credibility and credit, which makes what do you sense. Mean, what do you mean by credibility and credit? I mean that your capacity to be taken seriously and to be considered credible in court was dependent upon your credit. There was a property requirement. Was there? So there's a property quality for the franchise and for the For jury, juries. absolutely. For some time, that, that expands, like it, it changes throughout the 19th century and it follows the franchise generally for voting. But no, absolutely, you needed property. And this is also why you read any legal case. If you have someone poor, they will always have letters of credit. So again, I'm using in that sense of the word, letters of credit from people who are well We still do today. You know, you ask someone to be a referee, you'll generally go for the person who is highest up in your particular field. Mm. We still have it, but this was much more pronounced. Obviously, women being unable to own property in the 19th century, in fact, being considered property of their husbands if they were married, lacked credit completely, Mm -hmm. as did the poor, as did Indigenous people. So what changes is that the rules of evidence change in accordance with democracy, really. You start to have this opening up of who is allowed to give evidence. And as a corollary to that, you have a closing down of what constitutes evidence, what constitutes truth. So it's an interesting kind of process, like parallel process. Why that do goes you think on. that is? Why do you think what? Because I think that at the end of the day, they still don't trust them. <laughs> I think that it's that. And I think that it's a big question. It's less a part of the weave and the fabric of society. People don't just turn up to court to watch a court hearing in the same way as you'd go to the pub, which is what people are doing mm. in the 19th century. So I think as that happens in a Weberian sense. I think it becomes bureaucratized and it becomes, we love him. <laughs> I mean, what we've been getting from you just yeah. now, I've realized, is yeah. a historian's take on the law. Totally. So all of this talk about uh, the societal embedding of what counts as authoritative is a way a historian thinks. Yeah. It's not necessarily the way a lawyer that is arguing a case in the High Court this afternoon would would think. Yeah, which is why I did begin it with, ask this of a lawyer. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Rather than a legal historian. Yeah, Yeah. I don't think that I could give a, a good answer on 
what is a legal way of knowing, nor do I think that there is one answer. It's going to depend upon mm. which particular area of law. But how would you answer place, that as what, what is history's way of knowing? You sort of give What do it, you think it is? I think history signs up front to its provisionality, as we've yeah. said. It's interested in power and yeah. how it is not natural for a historian. It is embedded in processes and therefore it's open to change. So that question of structure and agency is a kind of analytic. That and how does that af- affect sources and knowing? Well, so you will that, take that to a source and right. ask those questions Good. of the okay, source. Yeah, 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 uh, yeah. The source won't speak for itself. Yes. I think a historian is very aware that it is making the source yes. speak yes. and that it is asking questions of our time to a source that yeah. will then be asked differently in yeah. the next generation. So in that sense, it's very embedded in its own conversation. Mm. We talked mm. earlier about democracy mm. and citizenship mm. and that... That emphasis on agency and the ability Mm. of collectives and individuals Mm. to change structures of power is why citizenship was such a key product Mm, of of the discipline. Because a citizen is somebody that is fundamentally embedded in a time and a place and a structure of power, but has abilities to act in that totally. context in a way that a consumer is not. So, I mean, there have been people who have been denied citizenship throughout history. Oh, no, of course, of course. Like, yeah. Of course. But the very category of citizenship yeah. is premised upon an idea of active yeah, engagement. And is able totally. to be made porous at the edges. What's inside the bucket is is changed. Mm. And it's the, it's the epistemic nature of placing that kind of actor at the centre of your the stories you tell. Mm. I don't think that law is blind to those power dynamics, but I don't think it is anywhere near as attentive to them yeah. uh, as history because it's completely bound up in them. You're talking yeah. about the, an arm of the state. Yeah, like yeah. you're just not going to have the same yeah. um, questions there. That's yeah. ultimately backed by force. That's backed by force, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So I'm glad we've settled that not inconsiderable discussion, you know, field of history and law. But there has been something else I've been wanting to totally pick a fight with you about. And you know what's coming because one of my biggest peeves is the historical present. Yes, I hear you asking, what is the historical present? Well, it sounds a lot like this. It's about 1903, and this is the first encounter with the law. would be the first of many. A police officer comes to her shop to arrest her for false fortune-telling. And so she lifts up her skirt, (laughs) and underneath her skirt, in her stocking, she's got this pouch full of gold coins, and she just takes it and goes, well, George, you better have this then, and passes it over to George. And the police officer is dumbfounded, probably has never seen that much money in his life, and just looks to George. And George says, what do you think of a woman like that? (laughs) This is Somebody Driscoll. And no, it's not 1903. It's 2019. I'm sorry, Somebody. I am completely on your side. This bit of tape comes from our episode, Making a Fortune. And in this episode, we're hearing about somebody's great-great-grandmother, Mary Scales, who somebody discovered was a working-class woman who turned from a washerwoman to a fortune teller and made her fortune doing so at about turn of the century Federation Australia. So by the historical present in Tamsin, you mean the use 
of basically just the present tense to refer to an event that took place in the past, which, look, to be honest, I'm doing in the book that I'm writing at the moment, and I love it. You're not using that in your book. Are you, are you I am, it? yeah. When I'm in the archive in my book. You're what, using it now. I am using it now. In fact, we all tend to use it quite a lot, Tamsin, for a reason. It's intimate, it's immediate, and it's fun. Also <laughs> wrong. Don't be so afraid. And deeply confusing. <laughs> and it kind of enacts all of the crimes that we pretend not to... What do you mean? Firstly, mm. it suggests that you know what it's like to be in 1903. Kind of. I, I fail to understand how that's different to other historical writing, particularly historical writing that is done in with an omniscient third-person narrator, which to my mind has far more of a sense of authoritative claims to knowing than a creative use of the first person. You're present. not stealing someone's voice, though. Stealing. This is very, like, high crimes. <laughs> well, they are high crimes, I mean. It depends on how you use it. Personally, I would not put my own sources in the historical present. I put myself when I'm in the archives in the historical present. Well, that's a very um, yeah. middle road. I just think that it works better for my book, but I'm not opposed to it. Like I think, for instance, Hilary Mantel, pretty much the best writers of creative forms of history, they do use the historical present. As masters of the art of writing, and she is, she's a brilliant writer, she understands that the historical present gives the reader a sense of immediacy of being there that you simply don't have otherwise. I also think that it's an issue of not patronising your reader. I think that people are quite aware that they're not in 1909. This premise is patronising. To say that you have to make a, something more alive by rendering it present is itself a kind of... Why is that patronising? Well, it suggests that you need to kind of do an act of translation in order to it says that like, the, make the, it palatable. It says that translation is more... It's not to make it palatable. It simply says that it enlivens it. Why <laughs> is the device of the present tense in your book? Like, what work does it do when you're using it? And what work are you not wanting to do when you're not using it? I don't like to speak for other people with this, but for me, it is about your claims to truth and your claims to knowing. I can genuinely tell you how I feel when I'm in an archive at a particular moment. I don't feel I can say genuinely how my particular historical sources, my breach of promise, women were feeling in that time. I feel awkward about it, which is not to say that other people don't. It means that you're absolutely right. I stand <laughs> somewhere on the middle road. I don't want to be able to claim that I know their inner worlds because I think inner worlds are so historically contingent. They come out with such strange things. You know, as an example with one of my first chapters, it's about a woman whose all of her love letters are written by her sister. She keeps them on the kitchen table and they don't really read like love letters to me. I don't really quite understand them as love letters, but they are. You know, that's a sensibility that I don't entirely understand and I would feel awkward. You've claim. made my point for me. Like, <laughs> I'm very happy to bury the hatchet at that place. The other thing is that mm. as historians, we know a lot more often about the world mm. that our actors lived in than they did. Now, we, we don't know a whole lot of things that, that they knew, but mm. let's say, you know, you're back in the Federation era, there's a fight in the market. As a historian, you'll be able to gather 
a bunch of materials, probably about what's happening one block over, mm. where the police mm. car's coming mm. from, what's you know who's reported it, who's dispatched it, what the onlookers are saying, that the people involved in the fight do mm. not have access to at the time. Mm. So when you slip back into the historic present mm. and try and situate someone in that context, you're imbuing them with godlike powers, but you're not right. making that clear. I don't think that that would be a very good use of the historic present. Like, I think that when you look at the people who do it well, they don't do that. All it does is that it allows, in fact, more than anything, for a certain fragility and fallibility on the part of the protagonist. You get much more of a sense of their humanness. Also through the writer's efforts to do things that historians often don't do, which is describing the texture of everyday life, which we don't have just from a series of reports, but you can get when you go, all right, she was in a courtroom. What was the wood made of? You know, cedar smells like this. Okay, I'm going to say that this is what it was. You know, and you're building a much richer picture of what the world looked like then. But I think you're also talking about two very different types of writing history. One can be the more analytical, where you're explaining broad change over time. Another one is trying to resurrect a lost world. And that's where I think that it can become useful. Do you think think the past... No way. I mean, (laughs) your manuscript of your book itself is telling. But I see that you want to bring this cordial duel to a conclusion. Yes. Since you're the uh, guest host of this episode, would you do the honours and tell everyone what they can expect to hear later this season? Sure, I would be delighted. Next time on History Lab, we revisit a theft of the most intimate kind was said to be sealed by a thumb mark and was later settled by the courts. It was known as the Cabillo and Gunner case. The decision a devastation for those determined that justice would be theirs. After sitting for 107 days, Justice Morris O'Loughlin dismissed the landmark compensation case based on claims relating to the removal of two children from their Aboriginal communities. In Mr Gunner's case, The judge accepted his mother's thumbprint as evidence that she had authorised his removal. And we'll also be hearing more from our friend, Professor Claude Roux, on the history of modern forensic science and the Lacardian theory. Every contact leaves a trace. I can't wait. Thanks for joining us on this bonus episode of History Lab. And a big thank you to my brilliant co-host, colleague and confidant, Dr Alicia Simmons. History Lab will be taking a break over the Australian summer, but we'll be back in your ears with our second episode, Making a Fortune, on February 4th, 2020. Set the clocks and have a safe and happy holiday. Okay, and how do do we take this thing off? (laughs) You've got to turn the volume down. History Lab is made on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, whose land was never ceded. Our award-winning podcast is a collaboration by the Australian Centre for Public History, Impact Studios, which is a new audio initiative at the University of Technology, Sydney, and our media partner, 2SER. 